3: Right, let's do it. This is awesome. So Hi, this is Yeah, hello everybody. This Thank is you our so much. first live show ever. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm Kristen. And we make a podcast called Gone Cold about unsolved murders in Philly and the suburbs in South Jersey, which most of you probably knew because you came to come see us.
1: <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully you've listened <laughs> to a couple episodes. But the last episode, did anybody here listen to episode seven? Show of hands. It's always good for podcasts. So, Officer Fred Sion, uh, weirdly enough, right after that podcast, Officer Sion's brother, Nick, who was on the podcast, called me and he was very tearful about everything. And I said, Oh, by the way, you know, we have this podcast live show coming up. It's on July 27th if you want to come. And he got through a little cough of tears and said, What date again? And I said, July 27th. And he said that today is Fred's birthday. So we thought it was a little bit weird that this was set up because we have no scheduling.
3: Yeah, we had no idea. We had no it idea. it just happened to be Fred Sion's birthday today. So. Right.
1: I know. It's a little moment for Fred. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we have Philadelphia crime scene officers here that we're going to be talking to. But we just wanted to take you through Officer Sion, a couple updates that have happened since the podcast. So if you've listened to the podcast, spoiler alert, the, when I talk to Nick Sion and then go and talk to the Commissioner Ross... He then leads me back to his uncle, who is the lead investigator in the case at the time, or one of the lead investigators in the case at the time. So we're doing this podcast, and we're kind of connecting people. We connected Nick to Jerry Ross, who's Rich Ross's nephew. Um, and we ended up connecting Jerry and Nick to something called the VDoc Society.
3: Yeah. So, after, so right now, the homicide detectives uh, that are working on... Fred Sion's case are continuing to go through these boxes of evidence. We talked about them in episode 7. There are 14, 12, 14, I can never remember the 12. exact number. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have a picture just to remember.
3: Boxes full of evidence that they're working through. That's a tough process because as soon as they finish a box, they have everything categorized, they know what's in there. They open the second box and they have to cross-reference it with everything that they already know. So it's a it's a really lengthy process. One other thing that just happened, I guess, like the week we released the episode, is the homicide detectives took the case, took Fred Sion's case to the v Society. The v Society is a secret club. Kind, kind of. Kind of.
1: <laughs> of. Of retired district attorneys, prosecutors, detectives... Everybody you can really name—they're all part of this. Some
3: people who are who are still working, but a lot of people who are retired but still want to help solve unsolved murders. Um, So
1: they kind of make this presentation to say, "Okay, here's what we have, here's what we know," and then kind of like this questions from the audience, where I say audience of these retired prosecutors, district attorneys, where they say, "Did you try this? Did you look at that? Did you test this?" Just other ideas, kind of out of the box ideas. So they do this presentation. Um, they're now actually actively reaching out to different communities and churches within that neighborhood to see if there's anybody, let's say, a little bit later in life who uh, may want to come clean about something. And maybe want to come come clean in a a parish or a place of worship. So um, they're doing that right now actively. That was something that was brought up at the VDOC Society. Um, And then also, when I was at the homicide unit the other day, um, I randomly walked in on the two V-Doc Society detectives. I'm not just randomly walking around the roundhouse, by the way. I was there for something. But sometimes that, I do. That's what she says. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I do. Um, and there were two de- V-Doc Society detectives that were basically explaining the process where they're setting up all of the boxes on a table like this and going through each one of the files and taking PDFs of each one of the files and then combing through it to kind of like reorganize or reshape how the, the case is uh, looked at. So they're able to kind of piece together maybe new threads of information how they're going to do it. So there's a couple new things popping up with that case.
3: And we, Today when we were walking around Old City oh, – yeah. You got a phone call. I haven't talked to you about this phone call, so I don't know if you learned anything. Did you learn anything from (laughs) it?
1: So I got a call from one of the detectives, Howard, um, who ironically is connected to my family, knows my dad, just to make this stuff really weird. Um, And he told me that they are right now actively taking pictures of each one of the pieces of evidence or the documents, and they're trying to kind of upload onto the server, he used a fancy term, which I don't remember the name of, because I did just get off a flight from Ireland yesterday, so it's a little loopy. <laughs> um, but he, they're going to go back in on Monday, and so every single day they're going to come to the homicide unit and go through these boxes. So, Right on. It should be interesting.
3: Well, we are incredibly honored to have two really special guests with us today.
1: The one and only Jackie <laughs> Davis. Hello. And Greg Godzilla Hi applause please <laughs> thank you very much for being here no so one of the turning points that Jerry Ross brings up was that we had they had during this case 50 or so people that uh, came in oh my god sorry hi Nick hey Nick hi Alex <laughs> Nick Sion just walked in with our boss Alex <laughs> Um, I kind of want to go back over what we just talked about. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. got it. So one of the things that Jerry Ross brought up about Nick's case uh, or about, I should say, Fred's case. Nick just walked in, surprised us. Um, one of the things that he brought up about Fred's case is that you had 50 detectives or so just flood the scene, come to the scene And everybody just started asking and picking off neighbors and witnesses and anybody that they could think about uh, to talk to. And there was no really one unit, like the crime scene unit, to come and be able to kind of sift through the information and also to collect evidence. And that's something that you two do on a regular basis. And I've seen Jackie mostly testify during cases that I cover. Um, And so just tell us... When you get to a scene, and when you get to a scene like that, what is the first thing you both do? Or your unit does, I should say.
0: We get called by the assigned detective division that's requesting our services. When we get out there, we meet with the detectives that called, and we do a walkthrough of that scene. After we do a walkthrough, we're pointed out to all the evidence that was found before we got there, and then we do our own search uh, numerous times over, not just one time over. Um, Do a... Yeah,
2: um, I'm sure you see on TV when we go to these crime scenes, you'll see the crime scene tape, you'll see police officers that are already there and sometimes in these newscasts you actually see the crime scene and sometimes you don't sometimes they're taking these images before we arrive Um, but a lot of times when we get to these crime scenes we're pushing the crime scene further Mm -hmm. than it is when we first get there because the police officers, they're trained in how to look for evidence and, and mark off evidence but you know when we're seeing sometimes some of these jobs where there's shootings occur and we're trying to find that if a bullet had traveled across the street, we're going to extend our crime scene. So um, our crime scenes do extend a lot further than just intersections and stuff like that. And a lot of that stuff's changed in the last several years as far as mm-hmm. our scenes. Plus
0: a lot of times we're getting more information from the detectives as they're talking to witnesses at that scene. So we could find out that there was a car parked beyond that crime scene tape and we had to make the crime scene tape big, the crime scene larger.
1: And so one of the things that I, we talked about this a little bit, but I covered this case. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but a Temple student was murdered here about two years ago, three years ago, Jenna Burley. Um, Joshua Hoppeter was the guy who was eventually convicted of this case, um, or in this case, of first degree murder. So Jackie was the one crime scene officer that got up and actually talked about a few things. And one of the pinnacle moments of this entire case was and I think it. I personally think that it was what held down that conviction. Was Josh Huppertz through this was saying his roommate did it. It was his roommate who actually killed her, and I just hid the body up in the Poconos. That's all I did on my grandmother's property. Um, and one of the most startling pieces of evidence was that Joshua's DNA, not Jack Miley's DNA, was on the buckle and the backside of the shoe one of the reasons I wore heels. Um, so when you take off a shoe, you obviously take it off from the heel and you take it off from right here. And it was pivotal. I thought it was the, it was what really lied to the conviction. Jackie, I know you can't talk about sp- particulars of cases, but how do you think that quickly ahead of what you need to... I mean, I would have never thought, and obviously I'm not a crime scene investigator, but I would have never thought to DNA swab the back of a shoe. With this,
0: with this scene... Um Every scene is different. We have to go through a lot of different things. We're getting fed information left and right and we are um a lot of emotion because it's a it's just a lot of emotion. I mean a lot of stuff that you see out there. You think that you become callous to it but you don't. You try to um react like everybody has a mother. Um every victim has a mother and every, every you want to solve everything. So when we were out there, it's just taking in all the evidence. We actually held that scene for a few days because there was so much to take in. When you have an inside scene, it's a little more controlled in a way. Um, so you want to make sure you get every single thing you can possibly get because you won't have another chance to get that. Even on outside scenes, but inside scenes are more contained. You're, you're more, you know your boundaries. You know what you're dealing with. Um, but that scene, it took us a few days, and we held the scene for a few days. So we had time to think. We had time to rest. A lot of times when you're almost sunk out, you're so tired, yeah. you don't think right. So we were able to help hold that scene for a few days, which actually helped. And we found the shoe, not that day, a couple of days later. Really? The next day. It was the next day. that so you found yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and, so.
1: I mean, that's another piece of it, but... And Tom interjects here if you have any questions like that about the, about the DNA swabs. But I mean, you have so much. I mean, I'm thinking like chairs, table. Like think, I'm thinking of everything even within this room walls, bags, everything that could possibly have DNA on. Like, what makes you think, oh, I'm going to swab that particular piece?
0: Greg actually had a great job with um, blood droppings.
2: Yeah, I think that um, it's, it's. I think a lot of times, a lot of things have changed our evidence collection and how we actually go out to these scenes and look at it. So years ago, when they would have a shooting or something like that, or they go into a crime scene, they're basically just kind of going there and just grabbing things and packing it and taking it back. But there's so many more things that now when we're looking at one piece of evidence that just picking it up, removing it from a scene, there's a lot more behind that that we need to be interested in. Um, Just photographing it measuring exactly where we're recovering it from. And like I said, the thing with the shoe is is it just picking it up and and let's say it turn in for DNA and you're gonna get DNA off the person who was wearing the shoe. But we have to look a little bit beyond the box as to when we're collecting a piece of evidence. Other than the obvious of why we're collecting that, what else could that piece of evidence lead to? Um, We go to stabbing scenes where there's um, multiple um, amounts of blood and by looking at certain types of blood drops and how it falls or how it's cast upon walls or ceilings, um, and photographing those particular pieces of that evidence, we can kind of formulate an opinion when we're out there as to exactly what happened. Once we leave a crime scene, we only can speculate on the photos that we take and where we take the evidence from. So we're trying to formulate what happened at that location prior to us leaving that location. Uh, we'll see damage to a, 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 some, a basically like something outside of a scene. And we'll say, well, is that caused from the incident that we're there for or is that prior damage? Um, so photographing it, looking at it, um, we observe, obviously, the um, injuries to decedents when we're on scenes and we have actual uh, decedents there. Um, and we're trying to actually place every piece of evidence as to why it's there. We collect a lot more evidence that actually leads to a conviction, but you know when we're testifying on the stand, basically all the evidence that we're collecting, we're getting the right evidence that we need to make that conv- conviction. So we get a lot of times where are like, well, so all those sneakers that you collected didn't have anything to do with this crime scene. No, they didn't. But because we were there and they were there, we're going to collect those. Okay. So. I get a little winded. He gets, I'm sorry he gets about very that.
0: yeah. He gets into. He does. I gotta stop him.
1: <laughs> they had to sit yeah. next oh to each goodness, other. You're not even yeah.
0: saying there... what, what you're supposed to be oh, saying. Yeah. Usually,
2: I usually <laughs> whatever. get I usually get kicked under the table, so you can't. <laughs>
1: they actually had to sit next to each it. other, so they yeah. could kick each other under the table. I did this for you yeah. guys. <laughs>
0: I did. So, but what I was saying is, he had a job where there was so many, so much blood on this one particular scene that I was talking about. He knows what one oh, I'm you want about. Me to set talk the about Where the victim that? was laying on the bed, and where do you start? You have blood everywhere. You have these drops everywhere. And where he started was the bottom of the victim's foot. She had dried blood on her foot, but there was one drop that directly dropped from above her. You could tell from the drop that um, it, was, it was done while she was laying there. So it couldn't have been her blood. Wow. Um, and that was the drop that was able to get the doer. Out of all those samples, if you saw the photos, there was blood everywhere. He was able to find that one spot of blood.
2: Yeah, and what, what had happened on that is the individual that murdered this woman and stabbed her several times in the chest when they first walked in an apartment. Uh, the struggle led to the back room, and she had was pushed down on the bed and then stabbed several more times in her upper back. And what happened in the process of this individual stabbing this woman to death, uh, he had driven you know, the knife into her so much that the knife came back and stabbed the front of his arm, his, his hand as it came out. So, the entire scene, as Jackie had said, it was blood everywhere in both rooms. So you're going to think that, like, when we're sampling blood, okay, you're you're going to, it's just going to all be the decedent's blood, which isn't going to lead us to a suspect. Um, But by taking a step back and saying, well, which evidence, you see the obvious evidence. Is there any evidence that doesn't seem like it fits what you're actually looking at? And by looking at uh, the decedent, the woman, uh, again, as Jackie said, she had some drops, a drop of blood that had fallen on the bottom of her foot when she fell on the bed and a drop of blood on the top of her heel in a perfect circle that we Mm -hmm. consider a satellite image. Um, So I knew that that drop of blood had to have been dropped there after she was pushed down in the bed and stabbed because otherwise the blood would have ran down onto her foot or it would have been smushed into the ground before she fell in the bed. Now granted, someone stabbed someone to death and as they're pulling away, they have blood dripping off of them. So right, that could have still been her blood but by sampling that blood sample on the top of her heel and on the bottom of her foot that had dropped down, it came back to another suspect. The DNA came back to someone other than the individual. Now I could take a hundred samples out there, get 99 from her, but I only need one from the person who actually who did that. And, and, if, and that's what led to an arrest. And, and the that. thing
0: is with that job also is we're trying to get the right person, not just a person. We're trying to get the person who committed the crime, not just grabbing anybody. So in this job, particular job, they were blaming the boyfriend. And could you imagine? I couldn't even imagine being blamed for something I didn't do. I would, I would, it would be the worst thing in the world. So you got to think like that when you're out there, too, because you're not just trying to convict somebody. You're trying to get somebody's innocence also, Yes, which uh, is a big, big part of what we do
2: yeah the evidence collection has come leaps and bounds in years. Mm-hmm. I mean you know we when we testify, we testify on what we collected, but we also have to testify why we didn't collect something or why we didn't do something nothing
0: um, yeah nothing is more amazing than having someone come up and giving them the, their freedom and thanking you for that It's something that I'll never forget on a couple of cases that I had I'll never forget people coming up to me and doing that. I have three jobs that I can think of right away that i it's like it's just heart wrenching when you when you give someone their freedom. It is just an amazing feeling that you got the right person, and you also got gave somebody a right to live. I mean, it's, I don't just, I don't
2: think anybody's not seen some kind of documentary or some sign of fictional crime scene show, and then they think like, well, how could someone go into a house or how can someone shoot somebody leave the gun in their fingerprints or DNA not be on that gun? It's, it it's happens possible. all the time. Yeah. It's entirely possible and. You know, we have to explain the process as to why certain um, samples of that, instances of that does not happen. And a lot of that comes into play, that people go in there and the juror, 12 jurors, seem to think that, well, s- somebody Hiddle. killed this woman so or, or a gentleman. And you're going to look at the crimes investigators and like, say, well, you're the ones, and you and the homicide detectives, you're the ones that have to prove that person did that. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure and stress on that, but, you know.
0: I, no, no, I, I don't.
2: They they might say
0: it, but I don't get pressured by that. I don't let any of that bother me because I know what I'm trying to do. Don't
2: let the blonde hair and the pretty face fool you. (laughs) I'm
1: trying not to. I'm not trying to. Jack, how many times have you yelled at the detectives? How many times have I heard that where they tell you like, do this or do that, and you go. I no, I'm listen. not. Yeah, <laughs> just she don't listen, listen to them. But she. Yeah. But then they. But then after it, they go. Oh my God, Jack, because you did that.
0: Well, they sometimes they do. Oh, sometimes they'll admit it. Other times they won't. But <laughs> but no, I mean they they'll. We we actually have a great relationship. We'll we'll talk about things and we'll discuss and say. But I'm never not wanting to do something. If they want something done, I'll never say I don't want it done because they might be teaching me something. I learn something new every day at my job, which is so great to have a job that you can learn something new every day. But um, the thing is, I don't like being told not to do something. That's where I have my problems. Don't do that, or why are you doing that, and, and all this other stuff. Oh, it's just going to come back to, well, let's find out if it comes back to the person. That kind of stuff, they sometimes try to save me from my workload.
3: What, one thing that struck me as you, were, as you were talking, you said that you walk into each crime scene saying, you know, this, this was somebody. This, this Yes, was. yes. And, and yet you're also very, very analytical about each of these crime scenes to the point where you can see a splatter of blood and say, this doesn't look right. One of these things is not like the others. Yes. I guess my question is, what, what does that take to be able to have both approaches at the same time, to Separate be empathetic it. about it and also say, I'm looking for a... Sp- a blood splatter That is a little bit Different than the other ones
0: that, That's a great question Because a couple times I had to just walk Out of a crime scene Get myself together And go back in Because I am still We are still just people Like we have feelings We have emotions And somebody's somebody whose life was taken it's it's something that is the most serious crime that is out there and we deal with rapes also I just look at it like this I am not leaving until I hope nobody has plans tonight because I'm not leaving until we get to the bottom of this and get all the stuff that we can possibly get on this crime scene we are going to get and then we have a little conference at the end with our unit and we say is there anything that we could have done that we didn't do, so we can go back and do it. Because we still have that
1: crime scene open for us. So we do it at the end of our crime scene. And that was actually something, because in court specifically, that's something that defense attorneys usually try and point to is, oh, but you didn't test that, you didn't test this, you didn't swab that. What are your limitations for the crime scene unit? I mean, you can't test everything, right? But we have our own lab. Can you explain? That's why we
0: try to, like with Greg's job, that's why you try to find the, you just... Try to take all the facts from from the detectives, and then you look at your scene, and then you do the walkthrough, and you just try to find whatever's not fitting in place, and then you take that,
1: and it prioritizes the evidence to be tested. And then on the flip side, what advantages do you have just as a full unit now? Like, DNA's obviously developing.
0: Oh, absolutely! Rapid yeah, we speed, get, yes. I love fingerprinting. Fingerprinting is my thing. I, I love. I just think fingerprinting is the most amazing thing still. Why? Because it's just the old practice, and it still is as good as it was the first day that it was used. I don't know. I just, I just love fingerprinting. But I, I get DNA. I'm all into the DNA also. But fingerprinting is where. I just love processing prints. I do. I do. Everybody thinks I'm crazy because I get filthy from head to toe, but that's what I love to do. <laughs> so when people talk about DNA, I'm like, let's talk about fingerprints. What about fingerprints? <laughs> but no, DNA is a great science, and uh, we have the touch DNA. Our lab is amazing. We're in the same building, so we get to talk, communicate with each other. Um, our latent department's in our same building, so we get to, I get to grab them. They try to not make eye contact with me, but kind of hard when I grab them walking by. Explain what the latent department is. Latent, They do our identification. So we'll process the print and then we submit it to latent to make the identification. We don't do the identification part.
2: Yeah, we're the ones that go out and actually yeah. fingerprint with the dust and collect the fingerprints, pull the fingerprints, look for the fingerprints. And then when we bring them back, we submit them to fingerprint analysts who will actually look at our fingerprint and through the computer system and them actually looking at it, we'll try to match it to someone.
1: I'm but, just thinking yeah. about episode seven, because one of the biggest things, obviously, was fingerprints, and we're talking with Officer Sion and the way Jerry explained it was the entire, like, it was almost like a wheel of fortune or something, like, the way that they a, had. He
3: called it a big Rolodex.
1: Yeah, where they would go through, F- like.
3: 50 years ago, where, yeah. Where
1: they just have to go through, and somebody would have to look. At each fingerprint and decide like, oh, does yeah. this look oh, at yes. this one? Does it look like that yes. one? It
0: was it was crazy. Like, with some it, poor it, schmo. They had say to watch the movie
2: Serpico. If you've seen Serpico, well, that's actually what it was like. They had a whole ba- a whole cellar of just. Police officers just looking at fingerprints stacks and matching it, and matching and matching it, and it's just no, the way it was done back then. I mean,
1: you don't, Yeah, I was going to say Jack, I, don't you don't know. I like the that. That. Awesome. process. I don't like to identify. <laughs> That's what you guys can do for a birthday: get her roll the decks <laughs> of fingerprints, have her go yeah. through yeah. through and find the one.
2: I mean, the yeah. funny thing is, is, a lot of with this, when you see this thing, where you see watch the news and they're talking about them, you could probably know a little bit more about that. Is the um, like the ancestry and talking about people's DNA? Oh, and, uh, yeah, and yeah. There's like a big Absolutely. thing now that like if. If obviously, if someone commits a crime and they they never oh, yes. were fingerprinted and they never had DNA taken, there it's not going to come back to hit anybody whether their fingerprint was on file or their DNA is on file.
1: It came from kind of the East Coast killer, yes. or the Golden State exactly. killer. Yeah,
2: and like a big thing, there's a lot of people that say everybody's you DNA should be him. on file. And if, if that was the case, then a lot of cases would get solved if everybody said – Hey, you, you know, you got your driver's license every four years, you have to give them your fingerprint and you have to give them a DNA sample. Now, that's not going to happen, but. Yeah, you can well, speak a little bit more about the, the Ancestry and all that stuff, which was cool. Well,
0: um, it was a it was a database that was public. Um, they took their DNA from Ancestry, but it wasn't it wasn't a database a, that was. It was private.
2: illegal, though, right? Taking it and using it for long. No,
0: it depends no. on the no, state. No, no. Actually, It depends with how on you the can... state. It, there's so many laws. That's the thing with DNA. It's so everything's so new that's starting to come out with DNA. And this, the way they got the um, the Golden State Killer, the way they they were able to break it down to him, is uh, one of his family members put it into a general public database. I wanted to do that with so many jobs <laughs> going there, but you cannot. It's, it's just not something that... But they did for this job,
1: and I don't know what the laws are like over I mean, there, well, but. the thing is it hasn't been tested yet, and that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest things. I mean, there are different cases that are in and around the state where you're. they're now trying to do that, where they're trying to pull finger. So basically what happens, they pull DNA from... Uh, from one of the crime scenes this was a serial killer um so they pulled it from actually I should say a few of the crime scenes i think they tied it to like seven oh, yeah. now there but there's a, like 32 there's that they think them, he's yeah. connected to and they put it into the de- into this database which um is blanking right now because i'm in ireland time right um, now but it's like it's like jed gosh jed oh my gosh um and mm-hmm. they ended up spitting it spitting out spits out that it's like it is in this family and it's, I think like the uncle or the great uncle or something of the DNA. I guess now it's a suspect Mm -hmm. and they basically were able to get, I think it was a cigarette. They watched this guy um, and he threw down a cigarette. They were able to collect his DNA from the cigarette and throw it into the database and it matched. And now they have like seven of these cases. So um, it hasn't yet been tested in the court system, which is what I think is really going to be the leap here. But, All these, you know, a lot of the crime scene investigators, especially for these cold cases, are jumping on this chance to be able to use that. And now there's a whole thing you gotta sign and say, like, yes, you can have my DNA and use it. Right, policies. But it was a public database. It's amazing to see
0: crime scenes back, like in the past, what they collected. It's like they knew DNA was gonna come out someday. Like, it was just, just boggles my mind. I look at the evidence and I'm like, I cannot believe they collected all this. That's so great makes our job a lot easier when we're doing cold cases.
2: I think it filled up. It's kept for 100 years. Am I correct?
0: Yeah. Like yeah. 100, 100
2: years, years calendar. Yeah. All the evidence yeah. that's just, collected from homicides. But it's amazing
0: uh, what they collected back then, like in the 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s. I mean, because there was no DNA. But, yeah, it's like they knew that something was going to be out there that they could test this with. And for, to keep
2: it was a pretty and good to keep thing, it. too. And to keep it was I a mean, really great thing. I mean, to not reach thing. a certain point, yeah. 10 years, and it's discarded.
1: Yeah. And preserve it. Right. right. And that's something that they did with the... I mean, Sion case, is that they have 12 boxes to go through right now.
3: Yeah, thankfully.
1: going through. Yeah. No shell casings, though, unfortunately. What's the coolest thing you both have done? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not lessening, obviously, the the murders that you guys see on an everyday, you know, and the tragedies you've seen. But what's, like, the coolest scientific thing that you guys have probably seen in your Years as there's a crime scene. There's so many scene.
0: things. Um, like I said earlier about giving somebody their innocence. That is something that is not something that I'll never forget because it was something that I didn't think of. You're thinking oh, I'll always get the bad, always get the bad guy and everything like that. But to get somebody off that that didn't do anything had nothing to do with a crime and to get them off is amazing and to give somebody their freedom. But there's been so many jobs. I don't want to be. I don't want to get into that, but there's so many jobs that were so important to me to find a person because I had a mother grab me and give to give a mother closure is the most amazing thing. There's so many amazing things. I just love what I do so much that I, I, I can't even break down to a minimal amount. We'll be here till next week if I started to tell you how many jobs that I love doing. But when a mother grabs you and, and holds your hand and you feel that her hands are wet from crying and holding her face and grabbing you and saying, thank you. That is heart wrenching. It's just a heart wrenching thing. And to be able to do that is just amazing. That's my job. And I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it.
2: I, I think real quick, I think even to mention the Hooper case and um, some other cases, I think when you see what someone can do to someone else um, and then when you go and see that and then you Figure out a way that you actually see what this person did to try to get away with it or hide it. And you can actually unravel each piece and say, well, Mm -hmm. they put this here to make it look like someone broke into the house. We know that because it just doesn't fit the crime scene. We can tell that there's some blood spotted this way and someone's moved and the blood's missing there. Something was removed from that area. So when you go in there and you take apart someone's in their minds, like, I'm going to get away with this because I'm going to do this or I'm going to go here. I'm going to call here and say I was there at that time. And through detectives, police and crime scene and in the DA's office speaking to witnesses, that that slowly unravels and when it comes around the court and the person sitting there is like I can't believe that I got caught. I thought I did everything, I thought I crossed all my T's and dot all my I's and, and you didn't and that's the reason what all these the culmination of everybody that, at works is, is getting to that point.
0: That's another um, thing is that it was trying to be portrayed as somebody else doing it. Again, you can't listen to what other people are saying to you who was who, who they think did it who they didn't think did it, and you look at the evidence and that was the thing with the shoe.
1: So really, yeah, because it was it was, yeah. I'll just yeah. leave it at that. You have to, you have to leave it at that. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't get into it more. But yeah, right, yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. Yeah.
3: guys. But but before we wrap up, is there one thing that you'd like people to know about your job that you think maybe? they don't get from lit, from watching television oh. i mean
1: isn't there an nci like just like it pops up with like I... it's this guy You did it. Oh, that, yeah, that. And then the fact that they get to wear heels on scenes (laughs) on the show, I really, that
0: pisses me off because I'm like, like, I have to wear these man boots and they wear these heels and it's just, that bothers me. I bet.
3: (laughs) So that doesn't actually happen.
0: That does not happen now. Now, No, there's no way I could even do that even if I wanted to. So, yeah.
2: I just think that, you know, we're both police officers, but we're human. There's civilians that we work with that do the same thing. And, And, you know what? We have families, we have loved ones, and we would, we would expect this, the public to get the same kind of service that we would give to each other. And, and we do do that. And our main goal is to either a, exonerate someone or you know put someone away in, in prison. I mean, that's, that's our main goal when we're out there. It's not about, uh, I just want to get out of here. I'm tired. I want to go home. I got a date tonight. Whatever the case is, I mean, we're there as long as we're there, and sometimes she can tell you we're there 14, 15 hours of crime scenes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we go home and we come back the next morning because the scene's still held, and we pick it up at that point. So I think, so he, I think yeah. every time we leave a crime scene, everybody kind of says, we did everything we could, and let's just hope what we did leads to Mm-hmm. someone getting a suspect being being informed.
0: I think if we look at it like everybody has a mother, I think that is the best way to look at something because that makes it close to home and it makes it makes you want to work harder to to get the right person that did the crime. Thank you guys so much for being
1: yeah. here. Awesome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: So unfortunately, they're working right now. So we're gonna let them <laughs> skedaddle. Um, yeah.
3: Thank you for taking the time out of your de- your work day to come oh, <laughs> over no here. Oh, no problem. Us. We we enjoyed Anytime. it. Thank you.
1: Anytime. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys so much.
3: Right. We have to take a break, but when we get back, we'll have some updates on every case that we've covered so far it's the
4: smart look at the issues catching fire in philadelphia flashpoint what we have is a crisis this goes way beyond just the perpetrator you know how many times i had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to
2: say no we've been hurting
4: i think we f- forget that you came from somewhere else too host cherry Gregg walks you through the flames on air saturday evenings at nine thirty and sunday mornings
3: at eight thirty. or search the flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app so this was the latest episode that we put out uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Was seven, and over the past couple of weeks, Kristen has been reaching out to everyone that we've talked to for all the previous episodes. So we're going to do a little update, starting with episode one. So we have a one. few
1: updates. One in particular that I think is well, maybe there's two that are most promising, but two that are very interesting. So the first one is Jason Richardson. Uh, if anybody's listened to that, we've obviously come very far from episode one to episode seven, I think, even uh, production-wise. Way to go, Tom. That's not me at all. Uh,
3: <laughs> we, we all learn slowly.
1: <laughs> I will never learn. I can tell you that. Um, so as you remember, Jason Richardson, was, uh, he was stabbed inside a bar in Upper Darby. Um, And recently we reached out to Leola. And there's, if you don't remember that episode, though, Tom's got a clip, which hopefully works.
3: Yeah, let's see if this works. You know, something can break at any time.
1: I have to
2: hold on to my prayers and pray and hope. I think if I give up that,
4: I don't know what. I have no doubt someone knows who did this. You don't go this long without people talking. And all all I need is a phone call.
2: If. You know anything? Please call Upper Darby
4: Police. And it may not be the thing that puts this, you know, case away for us, but it may be, you know, a solid step for us in the right direction.
2: You do not have to leave your name. You do not have to leave a phone number. Just say something. Suppose it's someone in your family. How
1: would you feel?
3: So the the people that you heard there were Captain Madonna, at the time Captain Madonna of the Upper Darby Police Department, and Leola Richardson, who just breaks my heart every single time I hear her voice. We adore her. Yeah, and Kristen, you talked to both of them.
1: I did. Captain Madonna has now left. Where do you want to say where he went?
3: Oh, yeah. Captain Madonna is now Chief this. Madonna. He's the police chief of Prospect Park, which is like 50 feet away from my house. So I'm very excited that I'm going to run into him. So one I said day if something happens 50 feet away,
1: Tom, you can go make sure you call Captain Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Captain Madonna said that there is this new detective. Um, I've reached out to the detective a bunch of times. I just haven't heard back yet, but I don't expect at this point, it's July, he just kind of jumped into this position I'm sure he's not calling uh, Kristen Johansson from KYW back anytime soon. Um, But I will be reaching out again kind of once he lands on his feet. Um, But we did speak to Loyola. Um, There's some good news and bad news. Uh, They're holding strong. Um, Unfortunately, Mr. Richardson has cancer, which he told me about. Um, which they're just trying to deal with, and there's a bunch of stress there for them. But on the upside, one of one of the things in uh, that episode that I loved was, if anyone remembers, the baby that was born around Jason. So Jason's sister had a baby. That baby is now a teenager and is going to become a doctor. So they're all very, very proud of oh. her, um, and they're all pumped about her. So that's kind of like how the family's doing, and there's now a new detective on the case. I wish there was more we could tell you. They still test that jacket a lot. I mean, they test it every few years. I had a long conversation with Captain Madonna about it, and he just needs one of those 300 people to come out and say something that happened. 300 people supposedly witnessed this or maybe saw something, and he needs, they need, I should say, the, de- the department needs one person to, to come out and say something about this.
3: Episode two, we went to South Jersey uh, to tell the story of carol rife carol rife was reported missing by her daughter dawn Centenni in 2013 she was found in the woods dead uh, just a couple days later and we talked to gloucester county detective michael leach for the episode this is where her apartment was located
0: she on was the left on, or on the right she was on
3: the top floor
2: on the right at the right side that was hers on the top bad there line. yes
1: her car was there. Her keys were there. I mean, I immediately thought, like, something was wrong. I felt it that day when I called her in that morning.
2: She she got the ball rolling so fast. Why she contacted us so fast, she knew there, there was something wrong. It
1: was just like, this is not her.
2: She didn't show up.
3: She always shows up. She took the day off from work to be with her daughter. So...
1: This is not her.
3: So that's Detective Leach and Dawn that you heard in that clip.
1: So right after this, Carol's sister... Which I had to say, I didn't know Carol had a sister. Carol's sister writes me um, a note and basically asks me to call her immediately. She lives out in Las Vegas. I do, I call her. And she said that, um, you know, coming off of a work shift, she got this podcast sent to her and she listened to it the whole night, could not sleep, and then had to write me, had to talk to me. She, she said that there were some things within this that she didn't know about, but it was it was very heartwarming to talk to her because she just is excited that anybody kind of cares about this case or is reviving this case or is thinking of this case. And so that was, um, uh, you know, I, I, it was just amazing to talk to her because she really gave me an insight into Carol, like not as the mother, but Carol as the person. I also just talked to Mike Leach. Um, he's actually on a medical leave right now, but... It's funny because he said, it's funny you're calling me right now because I've been thinking about this case specifically while out on medical leave, and he said that he's kind of like composed like a list of checklists of things to do. Like he's trying to rework it from a different angle and think point by point about how to get this case kind of reinvigorated and solved eventually. Um, And he said that he's actually coming up with a couple of new tests that he wants to have performed, but that has to be performed by the Camden County Prosecutor's Office and those investigators. So now he um, is kind of working on different uh, avenues and getting ways of them to test this new information, new evidence.
3: For episode three, we went to Collingdale, Delaware County, to talk about and learn about Fred Winter, who was shot outside his store in 1993.
4: But uh, I went to the rear of the variety store and I found Mr. Winter lying on the ground next to his car.
0: My neighbor across the street had just had a heart attack, and uh, I thought, oh my god, I hope. He didn't have another heart attack. And I ran up to the
4: corner, and everybody's running down and going up the alleyway. And I'm like, what's going on? And I think it was Joe from the store next to your dad's, the washer place. And uh, he said, mister winter Winner's been shot. And I went, you know, I was like, oh, my God. And he had a uh, bullet wound to his chest. And then I went back and ran up to the back. And he was laying on
1: the ground. And I tried to talk to him. But
4: he didn't respond. Yeah, the ambulance came in right behind me and they put him in the ambulance and took him to the hospital.
1: So what's new with Fred's case is the chief of Conleydale retired. Um, And there's a new chief and a new detective on the case. Um, And actually the The chief talked to me on the phone for like 20 minutes, I want to say, um, about this. And actually about three or four months ago, Joy Winner, her husband, and then Joy Winner's family friend, who's actually a homicide detective um, in Philadelphia, went with them just to kind of like review, go over, refresh, ask questions. Did you try this? Did you look at that? Kind of a mini VDoc society. Um, And they went through... Um, pieces of it, and just you know, thought of some more things, and um, they looked in a couple avenues. But right now, it still remains a cold case. I also talked to Joy Winter, who's the daughter of Fred Winter. Um, you know, she gave me she's doing well with her family, and she talks to Marie um, often. And um, but that ki- case kind of stands where it is. They're still looking, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was another store owner that was killed in Collingdale. Um, where the Winner family gave their money for their loved one to that family um, just to see if there could be any leads with that, but they still work on just trying to raise money for the reward.
3: In South Philadelphia in 2013, a guy named Don Lee was stabbed while loading his fruit truck outside his home. And this Don Lee's story is, is one of the most incredible I mean, things. Uh, I've ever heard. He had a a harrowing journey from Vietnam. He escaped Vietnam during the Vietnam War uh, Went walked through Cambodia and finally got accepted to the United States He made a home for his family here. He sent his kids to college and then in 2013 He was stabbed while loading his fruit truck outside his
4: his house. The detective said I'm sorry about your loss That's all I hear that is the worst day of our lives and our families, too. To this very day, the image in my head, the image in my mind is still there. Like I'm just can't, can't forget it. It's just there, and it's not going to be go away anytime soon, I think. I don't want it to go away either.
1: Why is it that you don't
4: want to get rid of that image? It's my dad. Easy. It's my dad. Ugh.
1: Even if he's covered in blood.
4: It's still my dad.
3: And that was, that was yeah. Lito Lee.
1: God, the, I love that family. The youngest
3: son talking yeah. about Don.
1: Yeah. Nari's still a pistol. I mean, she, I don't know if anyone listened to that one, but Nari is going, like, if, no, if the detectives don't figure this out, Nari's going to. She is, has been calling and texting. So in our podcast, and she heard it also, we talk about surveillance video. Nari... Um contacted her city councilman tried to get this video released they can't release the video for investigative purposes because ultimately what you want is a conviction and they just can't have it floating out there all the time and and also the guy on the video they're going to have to have other evidence of this um that's who they suspect that's a person of interest but they can't just float that out and say that's the guy um so they were left with that little sliver of surveillance video which you can see at kwwnewsradio.com. uh it's a little plug Uh, But the new detective on the case is a very well-known Philadelphia detective who I see regularly and have now been a bit of a pest about it and just asking about what he knows and is there anything new and did he try this? Did he think of that? And he actually gathered a couple of his buddies to kind of go over and through the folder uh, with Don Lee's case, Um, but they haven't really gotten uh, too far with it. But there are some new leads and some new things that they're thinking about testing They just have to kind of get the sign off from some prosecutors.
3: Back in South Jersey in 2002, Mimi Jones disappeared. Uh, We went down there to talk to her mother, Cheryl
4: Jones. Number one, this is my job, this is what I do put bad people away. I hear people sometimes say that, you know, law enforcement can get, you know, you can't be emotional about it, you can't be emotional about it. Well, I'm not so much with that, because it is an emotional job. It does affect you. It's it's extremely frustrating for me, because I feel like, you know, over the years that I know this family. I could deal with it if it was like she was taken from us from illness. i seen her daughter grow up. Or a car accident, but to be murdered. I can't imagine, it's unimaginable being a parent, not knowing where your daughter is. took me a long time to say murdered. When we do find human remains out there, before they even have a chance to call me, I'm calling them and saying it's not your daughter because I know that that sets them back weeks and sometimes months. Uh, Because of the situation of not not knowing.
1: What does it feel like to not know where she is?
4: Oh, it hurts. Very much. You
1: know, so... That's my girl, Cheryl. Um, So... I'll start with the good news first. Janiyah just went through her first year of college, and it was a great success, and she's very excited about going. That was the number one question I got about this, is about Janiyah, how she's doing. Janiah is the daughter of Mimi Jones. Um, I'm not going to say where she's going, but she's going to school for veterinary school. Um, and actually, it was interesting, as the prosecutor's office got together some funds from the victim services, and were able to get her some gift cards to kind of start, like, kickstart her... Uh, her college, uh, going forward. So that was, that's a piece of good news out there. Uh, I actually did talk to detective Hemphill, um, and he had just spoken to them, um, because there's every year there's a different victim services, uh, memorial that they have. They didn't show up this year, unfortunately, because Cheryl's father just passed away. But one of the interesting things is that we talk about this guy, Mark, in this episode, um, Mark, we reached out to during this episode. But we then found out that he was in jail for something else. Mark is now out of jail. So they have their eye on him. Um, and I know they're going to be reaching out to him again just to see if he knows anything. Um, this was something that, you know, Cheryl feels very passionate about um, this guy, Mark. I mean, she's very passionate about finding out what he knows because she feels that he knows something. Um, and so, she, they're actively trying now to dig up something new, but this is something that hemp is calling and talking to Cheryl about pretty often. So,
3: and the last one is the story of Eric Birnbaum. He was shot in his office parking lot. He worked at this law office and he was shot from behind in the back of the head. Kristen was able to speak with his sister and his best friend who was also his employer the guy that he he worked for
2: when i got here you know they were working on eric uh in the parking lot but they wouldn't let me near him and i asked them if he was going to be all right and they told me no mr bernbaum had pulled into the parking lot um, Right at the same time as a coworker, The co-worker was getting out of their car Eric was getting out of his car And they began to exchange morning greetings At the back of their respective vehicles uh, When a male came up and shot Eric Birnbaum one time in the back of the head
1: So there are three credible tips that came in because of our podcast. One of them has to do with the um, picture that was released that we put on, again, our website, um, of the suspect. One of the more unusual things that, have happened, that has happened, I should say, with this podcast is we actually did get, I, I guess it's technically a tip about this. Um, somebody wrote an email to us saying that they found, they like web sleuth, maybe went through Reddit. I'm not exactly sure to find a car that matched the description in the driveway about like a quarter of a mile from where it all happened. Um, so we sent that off to Pinkerton and, um, that's apparently one of the things that they're looking at, we'll say. Um, and so there's been three credible tips and they really couldn't keep their They couldn't say much, which makes me think, and they wanted to, which makes me think that this is now an active investigation. So really the case is not, doesn't sound like it's too cold anymore, I will say. I do just want to kind of re-up the Fred Sione case. Um, I got a little, I'm I'm just going to be personal right now. I got a little emotional as I I, uh, was talking to Jackie and Greg because um, his brother did walk in and I'm shocked at that. So um, I just wanted to kind of go through the Sion case and kind of what we know right now. So the VDoc Society, again, has this presentation that they gave to all the other um, prosecutors. But one of the other things that happened was the FOP sat them down, asked them what they thought, because if you listen to the episode what happened kind of is this all starts back with the FOP. An FOP spokesperson says to me, oh, you should talk to this guy, Fred Sion's brother. And I said, oh, okay. And I talked to him and he's incredibly interesting. So I decide, I'm like, this is way more than just this one minute piece that, I, that we do for radio. So I ended up going and talking to him um, at his home. He graciously walked me in. And then I was late for the commissioner's meeting because I was talking to him for so long. So then we had a delay of the commissioner's meeting. But then I ended up going back and talking to the FOP and they have now doubled their reward money to $20,000. So now all of the reward money is $50,000. And um, kind of this whole thing has now drummed up relationships. You want to talk about the picture? Go ahead. Okay. The commissioner um, and Nick Sion met at a function, and both of them, I, I weirdly sent me a picture of them, but they met because, kind of because of this, like they reconnected over this. And then we also had Jerry Ross, who has now talked to Fred's brother, um, Nick, and Jerry Ross has now come down and done the VDOC Society. So this thing has really become, like, more of some, like more of kind of a connection and a web than we even really realized it was going to be in the very beginning, um, but this is now kind of starting to heat up again.
3: Yeah, and
1: I hate to call it warm.
3: Well, I you know I I'm really touched that all of these people who have an investment in in this case and the Philadelphia Police Department and everybody is concentrating on this now you know it's been 50 years of nothing and um i don't know you know i you don't want to be too optimistic and say like there's a better chance than ever that we'll find out who who killed fred but ha- how can you not have have some hope that with all these really talented people working on this something might come of it Hopefully, know. hopefully
1: yeah. there's something, but all we can do is pray and we keep in touch with all these families. So again, if you guys can spread the word, not even our podcast, but just the word about all seven, that would be awesome. We,
3: so. we had planned to do a Q and a, we ran out of time. So what do you think about, we'll collect questions from people who, who wrote them down and then we'll, we'll put them in one of the extras that were, uh,
1: Oh, that's kind of a good idea. Yeah.
3: Yeah. We'll answer any questions we go you guys want in one of the extras we'll put out. Um, real quick before we end we need to thank some people we want to thank Indy Hall Um, Adam my guy over there has been engineering this whole thing with a broken collarbone I
1: I don't know how you're typing like if you look over he's like typing he's doing
3: everything with one hand there listening
1: Um, typing keeping time
3: (laughs) holding up our one minute wrap up now (laughs) card Uh, the Philly Podcast Festival thank you to the Philly Podcast Festival for, for throwing this whole thing this is really cool
1: Super pumped about this. Yeah. Jackie and, also, and Greg. Jackie and Greg and Dan and Alex yeah, Dan and everybody Fine. who helps us. We really yeah. appreciate it. This is a labor of love and yeah, tears.
3: Absolutely. And 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 one more thing, it's uh, I guess a lot of people don't don't realize how rare it is for a radio station to support this kind of in-depth reporting. Uh the amount of time that it takes to make these and the storytelling. So I, I do really want to thank KOW News Radio our boss, Alex Silverman, um, for for recognizing that this is important um, and and the kind of work that we're doing here. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming out. Thank you so much for coming.
1: So emotional. T-Mobile
2: has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.